Hello and welcome to The Price of Football, the show that looks at the money behind the beautiful game with me, Kevin Day, and Liverpool University's Kieran Maguire. Uh, I was going to say, how are you, Kieran? But again, we, we spoke not three minutes ago, so unless something major has happened in between, I'm going to assume that both you, the Baroness and Finlay are still as happy as you were three minutes ago. <laughs> That's absolutely true. Good. It's one of our... Well, you've, I mean, you've had three minutes to listen to a bit of Dead Kennedys. Maybe for a wonky jump Finley's way, so you're probably even more happy. It's one of our interviews uh, today, Kieran, and it's with Neil Doncaster, who's chief executive of the Scottish Professional Football League, otherwise known as the SPFL. Uh, he, he asked if I could call him that rather than head honcho of Scottish football, which is what I originally was going to introduce him as. And Neil's a friend of the show. It's it's a little bit longer than normal this interview, Kieran, but it's absolutely worth it because he's very open and honest. And he answered all the questions that were put to him, uh, very frankly, um, a couple of surprising answers. And bear in mind that all the questions that were put to him came from our listeners, most of whom were in Scotland, and they will find it very interesting. I think even non-Scottish football fans will find it just as interesting. Neil, thank you so much for joining us this evening. We know how busy you are. Normally we like to have a little chat to see how our guests are, but I'm going to assume you're fine because we've got an awful lot of questions and I think we need to kick off straight away. And you'll understand quite a few of these serious questions about the state of modern Scottish football, a lot of questions about the broadcasting deal, that this first question gets straight to the nub. It comes from Scott Grant. And Scott says, I'm a Partick Thistle fan who enjoys travelling abroad to see football in other countries, although sadly not whilst watching Partick Thistle. My question is, why is alcohol still banned in Scottish football? I've seen games in Germany, Belgium and indeed England where alcohol is readily available. It's insulting as a football fan to see alcohol for sale at rugby matches in Scotland, but not for football fans. So Neil, can we just... uh, Clarify here, so there's no alcohol at all in any football ground in Scotland. Does that include executive lounges? No, so hospitality areas uh, aren't covered by uh, the, the, the law, um, but you can't uh, have a, a drink at half time in those areas, but pre match and, and after the match you can. Um, but it is the case that since the 1980s, um, fans attending uh, most parts of the stadium uh, can't uh, have any alcoholic drink at all. And uh, that, that's been the case for um, well, uh, nearly, nearly 40 years now, I believe. Um, so I've got huge sympathy for Scott's point of view. You know, we, we would like to remove as many barriers as possible that prevent people from enjoying coming to games and, and enjoying the match day experience. So at other sports in Scotland, fans can enjoy a drink as part of the match experience. So it's certainly, I think, regrettable that that, that can't um, happen in Scotland. And I think you know, from a, from a safety point of view, from a health point of view, the current ban on serving alcoholic games actually creates an incentive on fans to cram as many pints as they can uh, down their neck as possible at a local pub and then run to the turnstiles and, and try and get in you know, in, in the 10 minutes before kickoff, which is, I think, suboptimal from, from the point of view of prior safety and a, a sensible way of enjoying of, of doing things. So I would certainly like to see a situation in the future where fans can enjoy a drink at matches, as they can in England and across Europe, as part of an enjoyable day out. And we'll certainly continue to press the case 
with the authorities for, for this to happen at some point in the future? Well, you part answered my next question because I was going to ask, within whose remit is it to change this? Would this have to be legislation or would, it, would yep, the Scottish yes. FA? Scottish government. Oh, as simple as that. Yep. Uh, no, they're not showing any sign of, of wanting to change, are they? No, no. I think um, it's it's been a, a, a difficult uh, subject within the game long before I, I turned up. Um, but we will certainly do what we can to continue to engage with politicians uh, and with the police to uh, encourage people to the view that you know football can be part of the, the solution to many of the problems in, in Scottish society and, and not the problem in itself. Well, also it's a shame, especially for some of the smaller clubs, because they're missing out on a, a handy source of match day income, aren't they? Absolutely, and you know we, we've got a sort of one size fits all uh, blanket ban, and. You know, the reality is for most you know, community clubs, uh, women's clubs, um, you know, you're talking about very small audiences, uh, small stadia, community setups. It, it's difficult to see uh, arguments against it, um, you know, which is why we'll continue to press the case. And I understand Scott's frustration as well. The, the rugby thing is annoying. As, as a punishment, Five Live asked me to go and cover a varsity rugby match at Twickenham. And I was talking to one of the policemen beforehand and he said it's one of the, their worst days of the year because all these middle-class people get, as he called it, sherried up and, and just cause all sorts of trouble. But they, no, no one takes any notice because they're not football fans. And there's still this expectation that football fans will drink and then misbehave, unfortunately, isn't there? Yeah, yeah. And I think I think there there is a large element of that. And I think it's for us to try to encourage uh, people to come along and, and you know, experience what, what Scottish football is all about and um, hopefully take a different view. Yeah, so we started off with a light-hearted question, Neil, and by way of a, an aperitif for a, a, a fairly controversial question, and one I'm sure you were expecting. It comes from Ross Quinn and many others. Um, how do you think the introduction of VAR has gone so far, and why was it introduced halfway through the season? Well, I think it's, it's right to remember that VAR has been in place in England for, what, six or seven years or, or thereabouts, yeah. and, and it's fair to say that there's been more than a few teething problems uh, in England with the introduction of VAR and, and indeed uh, everywhere else where VAR, VAR has been implemented. So the facts are that VAR does improve uh, the accuracy of decision-making, but it won't eradicate all mistakes. You know, There's always going to be a small percentage of, of occasions where mistakes are made even with VAR. But I do think that you know where in England you've got the introduction of the independent panel I think that'll help because that will see, see ex-players, ex-managers sitting as part of a panel assessing those key match incidents. And I think that will help in terms of building confidence in the decision-making process in the Premier League. So I think there's also a need to think about how we communicate VAR decisions. And I think the work that is carried out currently by Howard Webb in English football is mm. a good example of what can be done. So um, I think there's, there's clearly you know, the first season of VAR, um, it, it will improve um, and it would be wrong to suggest it's been entirely plain sailing. And I don't think anyone was pretending it was going to be. And as to it being introduced partway through a season, again, that's not unique. Uh, the clubs wanted us to introduce VAR, wanted the Scottish FA to introduce VAR as soon as possible. Um, and uh, the Scottish FA team who were putting it together recommended that October uh, last season, last year was was when it could be uh, brought in. So that, that was when it was brought in, just prior to the World Cup. And again, I don't think it's unique. I believe the Polish League uh, introduced VAR on a staggered basis. So 
it's it's not um, quite the uh, outlandish uh, uh, way of proceeding that, that some would have you believe. Mm. I think part of the problem is, and I'm only half joking here, is that our listeners know that I'm from a large Irish family and I've got a lot of fan- cousins in Glasgow who are Celtic fans. And what VAR has done for them is given them another thing to have conspiracy theories about, which is, is I think, possibly uh, predictable. Is there a Scottish version of Harrod Webb knocking about who's out there selling it to the, <laughs> the public? Uh, no, I've got a massive amount of respect for, for Howard. He's a... Uh... He's a really quality operator. I think the way he communicates, um, you know, as as he did when he was a referee, yeah. the way he communicates with uh, the various parts of the English game with the media, I think, is an a, absolutely a lesson for all of us. And uh, there's a lot that we can learn from the way that he carries on his business. He's quite a physically imposing fellow as well. I, I did a thing on Talk Sport with him a year or so ago, and I decided to ask him far fewer questions than I was going to beforehand. Uh, and I decided it wasn't the time to mention that all referees were biased against Palace. And now the broadcasting deal, Neil, as I think you'll understand, has had a lot of traction with our listeners. And the next few questions are all related to various parts of it. Um, the first one comes from David Watson, but we've also had David, Daniel Considine, David McTaggart, Nathan Campbell, George Higgins, and many others who asked this question. Um, and basically, are you surprised, they say, are, that clubs voted to approve the extended TV deal with Sky. Fans are unhappy with scheduling. The money is feeble, says David. And these these changing times of streaming, Sky looks increasingly old-fashioned. And I see little to like, he says. The SPFL attitude to TV seems stuck in the 1980s, worrying more about the impact on attendance of broadcasting more games. I don't don't think that's fair. Uh, I'm not at all surprised that... that our clubs overwhelmingly uh, back the uh, the extension of the Sky Sports deal. Uh, we currently get around about half a million pounds per game um, for each game that's shown live on Sky Sports, and that's broadly about the same as the English Football League get for their rights at present. Now they've well, they're in the process of agreeing an extension with Sky, um, and that will see, uh, according to media reports. Um, Sky paying roughly about 50% more for those rights. Mm. But in return, the number of live games that will be broadcast from the English Football League will go up from just over 200 to around 1,000 per season. So that's a huge increase in the amount of games uh, live on on TV in in England. Our focus in Scotland has been a bit different. Um, We've tried to encourage as many people as possible uh, to, to attend games in person in stadia. And so while live TV remains a very important element of, uh, of our business with currently up to 48 games in the Cinch Premiership being shown live on Sky, we've also got a further five home games per season that clubs can stream in the UK to their own fans under the New Deal. And as a result of that balanced approach, um, you know, looking after the match day experience you know, and, and keeping the majority of games off TV we have the highest attendance per head of the population anywhere in Europe by a mile. So mm. it's right, I think, to look at um, TV as part of the solution, but we have to combine that with an approach uh, that sees us focusing on the live match day experience. If, Kieran, can I just bring you in here before I go into more detail on some of these other broadcasting questions? I think by and large you've said in, in the past few weeks that the Scottish TV deal is quite a decent one, haven't you? In, in my view... Yes. I mean, 
it, you've got to look at all of the you know, horrible word different stakeholders in this. The mm. EFL deal um, has been approved by the clubs in, in exactly the same way that the Scottish deal has. Um, but from from a fan's point of view, what we now have is five, I think, five championship games every weekend, which are being broadcast, and therefore they're kicking off at either twelve thirty or five thirty. And um, Scotland is a much bigger country than we realise. <coughs> Yeah. Uh, here in England, uh, I, I know myself having having travelled to Arbroath and, and to see a match, um, and therefore it's it, it's a challenge for fans to travel to games um, for a three o'clock kickoff. That challenge, if half of the the Scottish games were going to be broadcast at, at twelve thirty or five thirty, um, would become uh, greater, and therefore I think it would have a negative impact upon. Uh, attendances probably to a greater extent than than we see here in England. Yeah, our next question, Neil, has been asked by Connor Twig, but we also had similar questions from Andrew McNeil, Stephen Harrigan, and others. Why was the TV deal signed without taking it to the open market, and will the next TV deal go to tender? Yeah, I'm mean, quite simply, we did talk to the market before we awarded the rights to Sky. Uh, we, we speak regularly to BT, Viaplay, Amazon anyone else who might have an interest in our rights. Uh, it'd be sensible to do that, and that's exactly what we do. Everyone knew we were in discussion with uh, with Sky Sports. Everyone knew that the rights were available. And you know, unfortunately, n- no one else uh, wanted at that time to bid for our live domestic TV rights. Um, Sky had been a very loyal partner to uh, Scottish football over the years, and we were delighted to be able to work with them on an extension to the deal uh, that brought more money uh, into the game in Scotland, uh, as well as enabling clubs to stream uh, games uh, and, and a small increase in the amount of games that are available with, with Sky then having an option to take some further games. So, uh, look, had there been any real prospect of competition for our rights, then you know we would have looked very differently at the process. But uh, much in the way that we have with our overseas TV rights and our domestic TV highlights and, and radio commentary rights and our live lower league TV rights, there is competition, meaningful competition for those rights, and we've gone through a, a more formal tender process, uh, as the the EFL chose to do with its domestic rights. But you do have to look at the uh, uh, the situation as it really is, rather than as you wish it were. And uh, you know, much as we would love to have had uh, Amazon, Apple, Viaplay, BT, and others queuing up to, to bid for our rights, um, that wasn't the position. I have to say, Neil, over the past year or so, we seem to get far more criticism from, from Scottish viewers about Sky that we do from English viewers about Sky, about the, the nature of the product. Um, and this question from Derek Taylor is typical of it. We also had the same question from Cameron Hutton and Neil McDonnell. And the question is, do you think the league broadcast partner, Sky Sports in other words, are doing enough to promote the premiership as a whole rather than just the biggest two teams to a wider audience? And why are Sky Sports apparently not using the full quota of live TV games? Yeah, and, and as ever, um, the detail is boring, but it, it's actually very important to understand it. So I think, first of all, we absolutely should say that Sky Sports are the, the market leader, and I think they do an excellent job of showcasing all the sports that they buy the rights for, including Scottish football. Mm. And while we should always look to improve on everything that we're doing, it would be wrong uh, for me to sit here and not recognise the excellent coverage that, that we do enjoy through Sky Sports. And just, you know, just by way of recent example, so last Sunday... Uh, the Scottish Women's Premier League uh, that, that Sky have uh, bought uh, some uh, live rights for. Um, 
we had Sky Sports reporter, camera crew, following uh, the, the final day of the SWPL season. We had uh, a camera crew in the car following the trophy, initially off to Celtic Park, and then it had to turn around and, and go to Ibrox and deliver the trophy to Glasgow City. It was an, a really fantastic day. It was incredible drama, with the, the title actually only got determined in the final couple of minutes of the season, with a goal in time added on from Glasgow City. So, um, you know, Sky Sports were there. They were part of it. They were enabling fans around the world to share in the drama and excitement of, of the of that huge occasion in the first season of the SWPL. So, you know, I think they do uh, uh, invest. They do care. Um, we can all uh, all do better in what we do, and we, we certainly would love to work with Sky and find ways of uh, enhancing their coverage even more. But I, I think it would be wrong and, and unfair uh, to criticise them for the, the coverage that they are able to produce. Mm-hmm. And as to the large the, the, the number of um, quota of games they have, they currently have the rights to up to uh, 48 games per season. Uh, but that's largely down to the limit, which is in our rules, on the number of home games that each club makes available for live broadcast, which is currently four per club per season. So four times 12 clubs, 48 games. Mm. And the clubs have agreed that that will go up to five uh, games per club per season from summer 24, which means that we can go up to 60 games per season. But within that cap, 48 at present and and 60 going forward, Sky need to ensure that they keep a number of visits for certain stadia up their sleeve so that they don't miss out on you know, a, a club winning the, the title. So although the th- maximum is theoretically 48 at the present, in practice, it's very difficult to get uh, up to that level because of the need to ensure that Sky have enough games at each stadia, stadium left up their sleeve to be able to follow the key action. Neil, let me <clears throat> reassure you, by the way, this is the Price of Football podcast. No detail is too boring. For our listeners, <laughs> you really don't have to worry about that. You can go into as much detail as you like. Last word on the broadcasting deal comes from Dougie McKitting. Again, he's just one of many. And he basically says, instead of sticking with Sky, what are the chances of doing a Netflix-style TV deal with all games available? Yeah, so um, uh, there's a couple of factors here. Um, article 48 uh, is relevant. So Article 48 is uh, what uh, enables each a national association to declare uh, blocked hours, which means that uh, no football can be broadcast in that territory. Uh, in the UK, it's between 2.45pm and 5.15 on a Saturday. Mm. Uh, and well, that, that's the case in Scotland, and that's mirrored across the other uh, home associations. So it's interesting, despite all the speculation that uh, blocked hours would be blown up by the EFL's new deal, that the EFL has agreed to retain blocked hours. And that will, of course, mean a large number of games being dislocated away from Saturday afternoon, three o'clock kickoffs, in order to, for them to be broadcast. And it does remain to be seen how popular that proves to be with fans. I suspect it would be pretty unpopular uh, in a Scottish uh, context and do believe that it would have a negative effect uh, on attendances in Scotland. So, as I've said, you know what we've tried to do in Scotland is have a balanced approach. Some games live on TV, some games streamed by clubs on their own channels, and the majority of games uh, that fans need to attend in person to enjoy. And you know, that helps to drive uh, that record of being the highest attended league in Europe ahead of the population. And only this week we announced record attendances uh, with 3.7 million fans coming through the turnstiles this season with still one fixture round in the Cinch Premiership still to go. 
and that's the highest figure in the 10-year history of the SPFL. So, um, you know, I understand the uh, attraction of a, you know, a, a complete streaming deal, but um, these things aren't uh, quite as simple as they might appear to be. I suppose the irony is as well, though, Neil, is that when you've got those grounds that are fairly full week in, week out, and, and totally full for the, you know, the, the obvious games, that makes it even more attractive to the broadcaster because they like showing games that have got a big, raucous crowds. So it, it's a kind of sort of worrying circle because the more people in the ground, the more popular it's likely to be for the broadcaster, isn't it? Yes, I think that's right. And, and in our case, I think it's about having a balanced approach. And I, and I do believe that with the new deal that we've signed up with Sky Sports, we'll have that balanced approach um, over the next uh, few years. And I think we are we will watch with interest uh, what happens in the in the EFL and and what impact um, their decision to uh, work with Sky to broadcast so many more games uh, actually has. Our next question comes from Matt Mills, Neil. And Matt says, will the SPFL move to ban betting sponsorship from the front of shirts, as many other European leagues have done recently? No, I I don't see that happening. Um, I think Richard Masters, the chief executive of the, the English Premier League, uh, he once said that the Premier League wasn't sniffy about gambling companies, mm. and I think I think that's a fair uh, reflection of of our approach. So, in recent years, we've seen Betfred, uh, William Hill, Labrooks, you know, proper um, high street brands uh, in the UK, invest millions of pounds of their money into the uh, the SPFL, uh, the Scottish FA, um, and, and the fact that the the Scottish Cup has not had a sponsor since William Hill since the William Hill deal expired, perhaps demonstrates just how difficult the the, the, the football sponsorship market is in Scotland. So I think it's also the case that we should recognise that many, many football fans enjoy a drink and a bet as part of their match day ritual. And, you know, betting is a lawful activity that a huge number of people enjoy. So, no, I don't, I don't see a, uh, a ban on betting sponsorship uh, happening in Scotland anytime soon. Is that partly a practical response, Neil, because the fact that in the current economic climate, it's often only gambling companies that can actually afford to make these big sponsorship deals? Well, I think it's it's partly practical, and I think it's it's a reflection of the fact that, that betting is a legitimate and lawful um, part of, of um, normal activity in the UK. It's not for everyone, but there's an awful lot of people for whom betting is, is you know, a pastime that they enjoy. So, um, you know, any... Any league should look any any uh, uh, sporting property, any sporting uh, organisation should look carefully at the uh, the sponsors that it wishes to partner with. But I would certainly argue that um, you know Betfred, uh, who were the, the title sponsor of our uh, league cup for a number of years, uh, and uh, Labrooks, who, who sponsored the uh, the SPFL uh, prior to Cinch being involved, they were really good partners for the league, and uh, you know we enjoyed working with them. Would it worry you, though, Neil, if in two or three years' time you were the only major European league that still had betting sponsorship? Well, I certainly don't see any um, change likely in the English Football League anytime soon. Um, okay. We know right. uh, that the EFL, like ourselves, um, have a, a relatively large amount of their current income uh, that goes to clubs, which comes from, from that source. So it's all very well saying that we'd, we'd prefer... Um, other sectors to be involved, but um, it's not quite that simple. 
And uh, I suspect that most EFL clubs wouldn't have a queue of sponsors mm. queuing up uh, ready to replicate uh, the, the current um, betting company deals that, that, that they enjoy at present. I, I, I suppose as well, part of the problem is it's all very well taking uh, gambling sponsorship away from the clubs, but you're still going to have their games on Sky bookended by constant adverts for gambling products anyway, aren't you? So it would it would be a, a strange move in a way when the rest of football is still obsessed and bombarded by gambling. Yeah, I think that's right. Yeah. Our next question comes from, well, it says Alan Morrison, Neil. Well, I've got a sneaking suspicion this might be Kieran's Scottish pseudonym. This might be the name. Very good. Yeah, this might be the, the most Scottish name Kieran could think of because it's a, a question I know he'll be rubbing his hands together with glee because basically Alan says, should Scottish football have an independent regulator like it appears England will soon have? Okay, uh, that's a good question. Um, and, and I think... Uh, if you'll forgive me, it'll be a, a relatively lengthy answer. So, of course, I think first of all, um, I think Tracy Crouch's uh, excellent fan-led review of English football has been a success so far, and you know it's, it's led to the UK government proposing uh, the creation of a new independent regulator. And as far as I understand it, that's likely to have a number of different purposes. Um, firstly, the ability to prevent English club, clubs from joining a, a breakaway Super League. Um, secondly, protection of heritage items such as club names, logos, shirt colours, um, a new beefed up fit and proper persons test, and to ensure greater financial sustainability of, of clubs in England. But for my part, I, I'm really not sure how much relevance any of this has in Scottish football. So if we take the Super League, first of all, well, I think, you know, like the vast majority of right thinking people, I found the whole Super League debacle rather embarrassing, but it didn't involve any Scottish clubs. Mm. Uh, in terms of um, heritage, there clearly has been a number of uh, heritage issues in Scottish football over the years involving shirt colours, logos, changing club names. But I'm, I'm not aware of similar issues in Scottish football in the recent past. Um, fit and proper persons test, uh, I think that's a really interesting one. Um, we uh, in the league in Scotland don't have a, a fit and proper persons test. I, I think if you're going to have one, then what the Premier League do is as good as you're going to get. You know, it's a really comprehensive uh, test, which looks like an objective test, but is actually really a bit more subjective. Um, but the cost of putting the, that test in place is huge. And, I, and I'm not sure how affordable that will be across the whole of English football and certainly not uh, in the case of uh, Scottish football. Um, and if if you take the sort of the broad sort of test that many leagues have at the moment, so have you got a criminal record? Well, you know, Mahatma Gandhi uh, had a criminal record. <laughs> so he'd be caught by a fit and proper person's test yeah. in today's uh, age. Um, whereas uh, someone like Idi Amin, um, generally considered not to have been one of the most uh, uh, best leaders in the world, uh, probably one of the most brutal despots in, in modern world history, um, responsible for the massacre of hundreds of thousands of people, um, had no criminal record, never held accountable in a court of law for his crimes, um, and most fit and proper persons test that currently exists across Europe might conclude that Idi Amin was fit and proper to be a director of a, a football club. So I, I'm cautious about uh, fit and proper persons tests. I think if you're going to have them, then they really do need to be very well thought out in the way that the Premier League tests in England uh, is. But the cost of implementing them is is quite prohibitive. Mm -hmm. And then financial sustainability. Sorry, go on. No, 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 you go. 
uh, and financial sustainability. Um, look, I, I'm a, a regular listen, listener to your your podcast. Um, I am increasingly genuinely concerned about the stories that you tell about financial distress mm-hmm. in English football. I mean, but when you've got English championship clubs losing hundreds of thousands of pounds every week, you know, look, the, the 20 million or so per year, it scares the life out of me. Uh, and, in, and in contrast, and, and while I do accept that there are some uh, clubs in Scotland, particularly in the Cinch Championship, that do have some financial challenges, and, and you know, part of that is driven by the desire to get into the, the top tier, the majority of Scottish clubs do live broadly within their means. So on each of those four purposes, which I think are valid purposes within English football, I'm not sure I see any argument for trying to uh, put in place a regulator in Scotland. We have a governing body, the Scottish FA, and I'm not sure I see uh, the need for a a separate regulator for the Scottish game, particularly uh, uh, one at the cost that it's likely to incur. I simply don't see it as being a good use of scarce resource in our game in Scotland. I'm going to bring Kieran in again here, if you don't mind, Neil, because obviously the independent regulator is a subject close to his heart. Um, first of all, Kieran, I mean, we get distracted a lot on this pod, but I would not have put money on Mahatma Gandhi and Idi Amin turning up on this pod <laughs> at any stage. Uh, I've just been reading about Mahatma Gandhi meeting Charlie Chaplin in Bethnal Green, which is all very interesting. But Kieran, you, you talk often of the financial sustainability of Scottish football and in an improving way, but... That notion, which I didn't know about, Kieran, does it worry you slightly that there's no fit and proper persons test in Scotland? Or is that the fact that Scottish football is generally financially sustainable means that you don't necessarily need one? The the issues I've always had with the fit and proper persons test is that look what, look what it's given us in England. Um, and it's And I would argue that it's an imperfect set of owners um, we have clubs that are not paying wages, and yet the owners have passed the uh, the owners and directors test in, in the last year or two. Yeah. Um, we have owners who have passed that test who have used creative accounting to try to circumvent the rules. So I, I'm I, I absolutely sympathise with Neil's position. There are compliance costs. The Premier League can absorb those compliance costs because of the the level of revenue that it generates. I think the EFL have got a much tougher job on a much lower budget, um, and and that's why um, I think they do as as well as could be expected, but it's a a tough battle. So, yeah, I I understand where Neil is coming from. Um, And my view of the, the independent regulator is that it's better than not having an independent regulator in England, but, but I'm still not entirely, I'm not 100% saying that it's it's going to work. It's not going to solve all of football's problems south of the border. And uh, I think it will be a vote winner until it's created, and then it will become a vote loser, because the first thing that goes wrong in English football, once the uh, regulator is there, uh, immediately the government, whoever it happens to be in power, will, will be on the receiving end uh, saying you created a monster which which has proven to be imperfect. This episode of The Price of Football is brought to you by the AI-powered workspace Notion. What if you had access to tomorrow's tools today? In Notion, you do. It's the AI-powered workspace where any team can turn ideas into action. 
my career is sort of a bit like being a butterfly and I'm always jumping from project to project. So therefore, Notion helps me from summarizing meetings notes and automatically generating action items to getting answers to any question in seconds. If you can think it, you can make it. And Notion is for everyone, whether you're a Fortune 500 company or a freelance football finance lecturer. You can try Notion for free when you go to notion.com slash price of football. That's all lowercase letters, notion.com slash price of football and start turning ideas into action. That's notion.com slash price of football. Hi, I'm Steve Lamack, and every week I'm joined by Music Allies Head of Insights, Stuart Dredge, on The Price of Music, the weekly podcast all about the money behind the music industry. In each episode, we discuss the very latest goings-on in the music business and dig into the finances behind the big stories. So whether you're a music lover who just wants to know more about what really goes on in the industry, or you're an aspiring musician, manager or label owner who wants some inside knowledge on how Spotify's financial model really works, or what the future holds for independent live music venues, this is a show for you. Subscribe to The Price of Music in your podcast app now. See you soon. You know, as you can imagine, um, the first time we spoke to you, so many of our questions are about this subject, and we've picked out a couple because we we can't just not ask them, unfortunately. And this first one comes from Paul. Paul says, in all the talk about how to improve Scottish football as a product, the biggest issue, the dominance of the old firm and the way the finances and distribution of them are set up to maintain their status quo is often ignored. What plans do you have, if anything, to try and change that? and make uh, Celtic or Rangers not winning the Scottish Premiership a genuine possibility. That doesn't sound like much of a vote winner with uh, Celtic and uh, Rangers. It, it, it doesn't, does it? it, it that's probably why, look, he did, probably why he didn't give a surname. <laughs> I, look, I think, um, in, firstly, in terms of um, title wins, it's absolutely true that Celtic and Rangers have dominated uh, the, the Scottish League in, in, in recent decades. It's now, I think, um, 38 years yep. uh, since Aberdeen uh, won the league under Alex Ferguson in, in 1985. So that, that's the extent of, of the dominance of those two clubs. But it, it's also true that, that that's not a new phenomenon. Um, in the early 20th century, I think there was a, a period of, uh, I think, 27 years or so when um, Celtic and Rangers shared the title uh, in, in the first um, couple of decades of, of the 20th century. So, you know, both, both clubs are large clubs by any standard uh, and, and have been, uh, you know, for most of the 150th, 150 year history of the game in Scotland. So I'm, I'm really not sure that any change to the way that the league distributes its income will make any meaningful difference. You know, th- these are massive clubs on a world stage. Um, I think what's more likely to make a material difference than anything that the SPFL does with its uh, uh, income, and ultimately the clubs decide how that income is distributed. Not you know, no, no one at the centre makes that decision. But what's more likely to make a material difference is an owner of another club deciding to fund really substantial investment in a, in one of the other clubs. And you know, we ha- we saw that in uh, the early two thousands when uh, Vladimir Romanov at Hearts, um, mm. these days not, not a figure that will be 
looked back on with huge fondness by by Hearts fans. But you know, he did back the team financially, uh, and in two thousand and six, I believe it was, um, when Hearts were actually leading the uh, the Premier League, they had an incredible start that season, two thousand and five, two thousand and six. And Vladimir Romanov fired the manager with the with Hearts top of the table, and Hearts went on. You know, actually had a really good season, finished second, and split the old firm that year. Uh, but who knows what might have been? But I, I suspect it'll be investment by owners in one of the other teams, which will make um, which will break the duopoly rather than anything that the league uh, does, which makes a difference. I was talking to a dear old friend of mine recently, Scottish comedian Fred McCauley. Uh, uh, we were talking about football because I, I, just, I need so much golf I can take when I'm with Fred, to be perfectly honest. But I jokingly said, he's a St. Johnston fan. I said, well, you support a team that's never going to win the league. And he quite rightly pointed out, so do I. Um, but he also pointed out that in France, only one team's going to win the league. In Germany, only one team's going to win it. Italy have had Juventus winning it 10 seasons in a row. Man City have just won it three times in a row here. And increasingly, there are probably only three teams in England who will be competing for it. So it's it's not as though the Scottish situation is unique. There are many leagues where only two or three of the biggest clubs will win the title. I think that's right. And it's also right, you know, talking of St. Johnston, you know, uh, the League Cup and Scottish uh, Cup double winners only a couple of seasons ago. So, yeah. um, you know, I think it's um, you know, other teams can compete, do compete. And whilst over the course of a season, it's very difficult given the financial might uh, of Celtic and Rangers, um, it, certainly in the cups, we've we've seen um, you know all sorts of uh, what you might call shocks over the years. Uh, David Turnbull has a possible solution. Um, Matt Underwood also sent the same suggestion. Uh, David says, "Why can't the Scottish Premiership be a sixteen-team top flight and introduce Celtic and Rangers to a set group stage every season to allow a bigger league, but still guarantee the four derby games that the clubs and TV want?" Yeah, and. and uh, a lot of people call for um, bigger expanded leagues, but there is a difference between what people say they want and what they'll buy a ticket to watch. Mm. And the fact is that across sport in general, people are more likely to buy a ticket for a meaningful game when something is genuinely at stake. Um, and, and smaller leagues mean that there are more meaningful matches. So just by way of example, on the final final match day of the Cinch Championship season this season, Nine out of the ten teams didn't know at kickoff which division they would be in next season. Wow! So, you know, that that's the hallmark of Scottish football, which is drama and excitement. And if you have bigger leagues, then you'll end up with more mid-table, meaningless matches. Um, and and it's for that reason that actually leagues with ten, twelve, or fourteen clubs are far more common across European football than eighteen or twenty-team leagues. That that's just statistically the case. Um, and in fact, the Swiss uh, League recently adopted our own um, split league format in order to create more excitement and more drama. So, um, you know, I know that the uh, the, the split, uh, which was introduced around about 2000, I think, 2001, um, it had its detractors initially. But I think most people uh, recognize that the split league system now um, does create real points of tension and drama. And the fact that you've got so many meaningful games against you know, clubs in your half of the table post-split after game 33, it does drive uh, excitement and drama towards the end of the season. 
Our next question, Neil, comes from Raymond Donaghy. Um, and it's not about the, the big the big two, the old firm, except it sort of turns into a question about the, the old firm right at the end. But Raymond says, isn't it about time we had professional full-time referees in Scotland, given that the SPFL can attract crowds of up to 60,000? And also, isn't it time that referees declared what team they support to keep the SPFL in line with the rest of Europe? I've, I've always been slightly baffled by that last uh, topic because it, it it doesn't bother me. I, I, it wouldn't bother me if I knew which team the referee supported because I I know they're not going to be biased against my. I would shout out that they're biased against my team, but it's never occurred to me to question the, the integrity of the referee because he might have to be a QPR fan. Yeah, I, look, I mean, I think it's it's a debate that comes up. Um, I again, refereeing is the domain of the Scottish FA, not the league. The, yeah. the we pay for the referees and, and match officials that, that turn up at games. Um, but they're, they're trained and supplied by the Scottish FA. So, you know, I, I don't want to tread on, on Ian Maxwell's um, toes, but I think it would be um, relatively cost prohibitive, uh, the, the, the cost of employing um, so many uh, full-time match officials. And not least of all, that there's a number of our best referees who've got, you know, really well-paid full-time jobs and, and they simply wouldn't want to move across uh, and potentially take a pay cut to become a full-time referee. So, I'm not sure it's going to add to the pool of quality referees that we need. Um, and in terms of uh, you know referees declaring which team they support, I, I really don't know whether it's the case across Europe that that, that is the case. Um, I suspect in Scotland it, it might uh, cause more issues more issues than it might in other parts of Europe. In candid, mm. do you think the FA then know privately which teams referees support just in case you know in order to head off? Any criticism at the past, so to speak? I honestly don't know. Right. I, you know, it's not it's not an area that I get into. Um, I try as a league to to stay, you know, to stick to our lane and uh, do the things that we have to do. And uh, refereeing is not one of those, fortunately for us. And uh, that's very much a, a Scottish FA territory. We still have three more questions for you, Neil. I really appreciate your time. This the the first one comes from Stephen Clark, and. Uh, I like this question because this is a this is a chap who's been sitting around in a bar with some mates, basically kicking about some ideas. And Stephen says, "Have you ever considered proposing radical changes to our game to make it stand out and be more appealing to a wider audience? I.e., two yellow cards is a sin bin rather than a red bonus point if you score three or more goals, etc." I'm, I'm going to be very disappointed, Neil, if the answer to any of these questions is yes, because frankly, VAR was a line in the sand I wasn't prepared to cross. Anything else is going to take a lot of years to persuade me. Well, no, I think it's a good question. And, and you know, we, we should look at what we can do and what we can't do. So what we can't do is to tinker with the laws of the game. So those are set by IFAB, which is the International Football Association Board. Uh, and that was uh, formed in the uh, uh, 1880s. Mm. Um, uh, and it was formed to agree a standardised set of laws for the game. So that's in contrast to some other sports like rugby league, for example, which has different rules uh, in uh, in the UK from the rules that apply in Australia, as an example. So IFAB was formed uh, way back in the 1880s. That was actually um, nearly 20 years before FIFA was formed mm. uh, in 1904. But FIFA has always regarded IFAB as the guardian of the laws of the game. So... Um, Although FIFA sits on IFAB um, and, and controls, I think, 50% of the votes uh, on IFAB, 
The rest of the seats are held by the four British associations, including the Scottish FA. And for any law change to be implemented uh, across the world, then you need at least six out of the eight available votes uh, to vote in favour. So that, that creates a certain amount of stability. Um, now, the laws of the game uh, include what happens when a player receives two yellow cards. So it simply wouldn't be open to the Scottish League to decide what the consequence is. That, that's an IFAB decision and nothing that we can do anything about. In theory, the, the second part of the question from Stephen about, um, uh, yellow, uh, about bonus points if you score three or more goals, yeah, you, you could do that because you know how you constitute a league competition is a matter for that league. But I remember um, when I was back with Norwich, uh, I was on the board of the Football League at that time. Uh, Brian Mewinney was the chairman, and he was a big fan of trying to push through the idea of penalty shootouts whenever you had a drawn game in the league. Wow. And it's fair to say that that proposal absolutely bombed. It, it just didn't get anywhere with the clubs. And I, and I think it's an indication that whilst um, progressive change, gradual change should be looked at and is good. And in in the Via Play Cup, um, which is our League Cup, uh, we introduced a group stage uh, a while back um, together with uh, a penalty shootout for for drawn games for a bonus point in that cup competition. I think you know radical change, particularly in a league competition, is risky. So uh, I, you, know, you need to be careful. So uh, there's certain things we can do, uh, and and look, we should be absolutely open minded to how within the range of things that we can control, we can think, can make things more exciting and make uh, the Scottish uh, uh, Scottish League stand out. Um, but most of the things are matters for IFAB and we can't influence. See, I'm old-fashioned about football, Neil. I, I think it's the most beautiful game in the world. It's wonderful. I love it. There's no sport for me that... I watch other sports. Uh, of course I do, especially if the ball is round as it should be and not oval-shaped. But... I, football just has so much. I want to be sitting next to somebody at Sellers Park who appreciates a nil-nil draw as much as I do. I don't want to be sitting next to somebody who's only there on the off chance that they'll see somebody go into a sin bin. It's so it's yep. it's just it's tinkering at the edges that I don't. It's the same with VAR. The reason I don't like VAR is for me. I think it's the thin end of the wedge. Is that eventually our games will be four hours long because the the, the top clubs will will eventually cotton on to the fact that if you're going to question offside, then you might as well check whether that was a corner or a goal kick or not. But I understand that you need to make these little tinkers. But it's it's a beautiful, simple game. It, but we it, should remember that when I mean I, I'm a huge fan of, fan of playoffs, and and yeah, you know I, yeah. I think the introduction of playoffs uh, between the Cinch Premiership and the Cinch Championship has absolutely made uh, the, the top end of the, the Cinch Championship hugely exciting. We've got um, you know, uh, playoffs going on at the moment. Um, playoffs, I think, have transformed. Mm. Uh, league football in the English Football League and in the uh, SPFL for the better. But when they were introduced, there was a huge amount of resistance, a lot of naysayers, traditionalists who didn't like it. But I think most people would recognise that they've been a a positive change. So we absolutely should be open-minded to things that genuinely can enhance the game whilst remaining true to many of the traditions that make football such a wonderful sport. Yeah, I've, I've embraced the playoff now, Neil, because it has given me, well, it's given me some terrible days at Wembley, but it's given me some wonderful days at Wembley. But it still bothers me that the team who finishes sticks in the table gets a chance to go up and the team who finishes third bottom doesn't get a chance to not go down. 
So I've always said that both ends of the table should be involved in the playoff game. Then I would, I would enjoy it rather more then. Well, it was the playoff game in 2002, Norwich against Birmingham, uh, which uh, candidly kept me in my job at that time at Norwich because really uh, we were, um, I mean, we, we snuck, Norwich snuck into the um, playoffs on the final day of the season, um, ended up playing Wolves um, uh, in, a, in a two-legged uh, semi-final, uh, beat Wolves uh, to get to what was then the um, Millennium Stadium in Cardiff, uh, playing Birmingham. Uh, but at that time, uh, ITV Digital uh, had uh, recently uh, uh, gone bang. Of course, yeah. And it was it was a huge game. So, you know, promotion to the Premier League with the Sky broadcast deal and the mega millions within the Premier League or potential penury uh, within the EFL with no broadcast deal. So, um, you know, fortunately, I was able to do a deal with uh, with, with Cameron Brady at that time at, at, at Birmingham City with um, loser takes all uh, on the gate. Uh, and and that was and plus plus a uh, more money which which went to Norwich at that time, uh, which helped uh, to effectively insulate uh, Norwich City from the uh, the loss of that game, and ultimately enabled the club to invest uh, in in players in, in subsequent seasons. And, and on the back of that, the club got promoted uh, in two thousand and four. So now it was a it was a massive. Uh, uh, game for, for Norwich City and uh, uh, not one that I look back on with huge fondness, but massively important to the club at that time. So, Agnes, so, you, so you sat down with, with Karen Brady and you decided that as some small consolation for the losing team, they would take all the money from that one-off game? Yep. And, oh, and, and I can't remember the sum, but there was a sum of money that the, the winner would pay the loser as well. Now, yeah, it, it was absolutely tiny in, in the uh, scheme of things if you got promoted. Uh, it would be a massive windfall for the for the club that won. So there was no question of of integrity for the game, but it, it absolutely uh, meant in the context of not having a broadcast deal in the English football league the following year um, that the, the club would be okay. Norwich City would be okay, and, and we got that deal approved uh, by the uh, English uh, Football League board. I believe that the last signature that we got on that uh, piece of paper was about ten to three, so ten minutes before kickoff wow. uh, at the game in Cardiff. Goodness. Our penultimate question, Neil, comes from Stephen McGeo. Um, and it's a sort of existential question you hear often from Scottish fans talking about countries of a similar size. And basically, Stephen says, why do clubs from Belgium and Portugal seem to perform so much better than Scottish clubs? And what can be done to bridge the gap? I presume he's talking about a European competition here. Yeah, look, in general, you'd expect countries with bigger populations to be more successful. And you know, it's no surprise that it's teams from the big five leagues that, that typically populate the latter stages of European competition. And Belgium, I think, has got around a million, uh, 12 million population. Mm. Uh, Portugal, I think, around 10 million population. So, you know, Scotland's got around about five and a half million. So you'd expect uh, Portugal and, and Belgium to be. Uh, stronger uh, you know, in terms of European competition, but against that, you know, Rangers got to a major European final yeah, in both two thousand eight and mm-hmm. two thousand twenty-two, Celtic in two thousand three. So I'm not sure it's fair to say that, that Belgian and Portuguese clubs perform so much better than Scottish clubs. And our final question, Neil, was probably our most specific one, and it's about one particular game. It comes from Rhys Cochrane. And Rhys says, would you ever consider a Scottish edition of the Community Shield? I think I could make a stab at what the answer might be to this, uh, Neil, but I'd like to hear your version first. 
Yeah, look, I, I think we we absolutely should be open to anything that that can bring more money into the game. Um, I mean, I think there are challenges with any such um, Super Cup um, around calendar. Uh, we can't escape that, and those challenges are only going to get worse with the uh, the extra European dates that we're going to have uh, from twenty twenty four onwards. But I mean, I saw recently that Serie A in Italy had agreed to play its Super Cups in Saudi Arabia uh, mm. from next season. Now, there's, a, there's you know many millions of reasons why uh, they've agreed to do that. But I think it is an example of, of radical thinking that can make a material difference uh, to a league's finances. So um, I, I do think we should remain open to anything that can um, uh, bring more money into the game, help our clubs remain financially sustainable and relevant. I suppose as well, though, there will be a lot of Scottish fans listening to this, Neil, who will say that despite what you said about other teams winning the Cups, for example, why would you need a game that probably two seasons out of three is yet another chance for Rangers to play Celtic again? Well, we've got uh, Inverness Cali Thistle um, playing uh, Celtic in the Scottish uh, Cup final on uh, the 3rd of June. So let's see. And look, uh, as we saw with St. Johnson, you know, double Cup winners, uh, anything can happen. You do have some gloriously named teams in, in Scotland, don't you? <laughs> I, lo- I love Bonnie. Bonnie Rig Rose, the fact they're called the Rosie Posey. It's just, it's just, there's something beautiful and romantic about Scottish football names. They, they clearly took it so much more seriously when they were forming their teams. I love it. Neil, it's been a pleasure talking to you as always. Thank you so much for coming on and answering these questions. We, there are a lot more questions we could have put to you. Um, there's a couple we couldn't have put to you, but um, thank you so much for dealing honestly and openly with the questions we did ask you, and we wish you all the best uh, for what remains of the season and for the seasons ahead up in Scotland. Thank you very much. It's been a genuine pleasure to be with you, and uh, look, I, I think Scottish football is a, a wonderful thing. Um, I, I think it is very raw, it's passionate, it's exciting, it's dramatic, and uh, I think all of us involved in the game uh, consider it a privilege to be doing so. And uh, I, I think there is something genuinely special about Scottish football and you know, I'm always happy to come and talk about it. Kieran, that was... Um, I, 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 as always, when we speak to Neil... I, I find him fascinating. I, I get a lot of insight into uh, Scottish football that I feel slightly ashamed I didn't know about. Anyway, but there's two stories I really want to pick up, Kieran. And the first of them, what, it wasn't a Scottish story. It's that story about the, the 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 playoff final between Norwich and Birmingham when the when he and Karen Brady did a deal that. The, the losing team at the playoff final took all the gate receipts, which was only ratified by the Football League at about five minutes before kickoff. I, it strikes me, Kieran, that's the sort of thing that should happen on an official basis every season, because that would be a, some small consolation for losing out on that big Premier League money, wouldn't it? Yes, and I think this was a bit of a trailblazer in many regards because it is now the way that it is traditionally done. I think it actually might be mandatory that the side who has just won the playoff, who is now looking at that check for a hundred million pounds in TV money, uh, says, uh, "Well, you know, we're going to be gallant losers, and uh, you know, we've just been watched by eighty thousand people here at Wembley. We're going to forego our share of the gate receipts, and it's." It's small consolation, but small consolation is better than no consolation mm. for the losing club. So, so fair play to Neil and to Karen Brady. 
um, for for coming up with that idea, and uh, you know, it, it's it's certainly set things in motion ever since. I have to say, Kieran, as well, I, I've thought Neil's answer to the question about whether Scottish football needs a regulator, uh, which basically, no, it doesn't, because we've pretty much got our house in order, was a, a fair one. But I, I am slightly edgy about the idea of there being no fit and proper person's test whatsoever, and the fact that it might actually cost money. How would it cost money, Kieran, to have a, a fit and proper person's test? And, and, and do you think that's a wise move in Scottish football, or do you think that the economics of Scottish football is such that you're probably not going to attract wrongans there to buy a club anyway? Um, I think if we separate out those two issues, there are compliance costs with regards to the owners and directors test. Uh, if, if we take a look at PIF acquiring control of Newcastle United in England, that took around about 18 months. Um, Nick DeMarco, now our, another one of our very good friends, he mm. was acting on behalf, effectively, of the, the people who were looking to take over the club. Um, yeah, our silver tongue friends are not cheap. You also have to have the accountants uh, looking at the financial background of the the prospective owners, and and that's adding to your compliance costs. And and uh, I, I think sometimes, yeah, we, we, we joke and we jest about the, the accountants and the lawyers, but it, it is true that yeah, every thousand pounds that goes in, in terms of their fees in respect of um, an owner's and director's test. And you've only got to look at the, the amounts that have been charged by those clubs that have gone into administration in England. Yeah, the, yeah, the millions of pounds that have gone out to, to, to individual firms of accountants, that, that money is lost to the game forever. Um, so therefore, I can understand... Neil's position, Scottish football is not awash with money. Um, are there no wrong-uns in Scottish football? Uh, I think if you if you talk to individual fans of individual clubs, they, they will say that, but that's not the case. But it's the same in England. Um, so it, ultimately, it is the buyer beware. I think the, the potential gains to be made in Scotland um, are less than those that we see in England, because there is a more democratic uh, allocation of uh, TV money between the divisions. And therefore, the incentive to overspend, which exists in English football, in the Premier League, in uh, in the Championship, and also uh, to a certain extent in League One, because there's now there's a big gap between the Championship in League One, which is going to grow even bigger when the new TV deal comes into place. Um, that that isn't the case um, in in Scotland. So uh, yeah, I'd say on balance, and, and you know, my view in respect of the regulator in England is that on balance, it's it's a, it's a good, it's a better thing than a worse thing. Mm. Equally, I can understand in Scotland the opposite may be true. But we we talk about Scottish football a lot on the pod, Kieran. But it it tends to be about uh, the old firm, their finances. It tends to be about sponsorship deals. It tends to be about the broadcasting deal. It, in my memory, it, we very rarely talk about individual clubs that are being driven into the ground by by owners. And and it it seems to me, and I'm I may well be wrong about this. It seems to me that more Scottish clubs are owned by local people. Local and more Scottish clubs are owned by fans. Certainly, bigger clubs. I mean, Hearts is the biggest club in in Britain that's fan uh, fan owned. I believe is that right? Yes. Yeah, yeah I think you're so, right. So, so it, it seems to me that they don't. Their clubs, for some reason or other, don't seem to attract 
the sort of chances and tyre kickers that English football does? Or if they do, we're not getting to talk about them. Well, I think if we if we look at the situation in England, um, there is this this cult of owning a football club and all that it brings because of the the huge amount of attention, especially if you're a Premier League club, that you get on a global basis. That's not the case in Scotland. You know, as, as Neil alluded, Scotland is uh, you know the population of Scotland is probably about one tenth of that of England. It's it's half of that of Belgium. It's, mm. it's you know it's less than half of that of Portugal, and therefore the number of global eyeballs. If, if we take a look, for example, at what yeah, there's no disrespect because I think it's a tremendous achievement which that they've had this season. You know, Bournemouth are not a big club in terms of capacity of the stadium. They've done extremely well to get to the Premier League. But their owner, Bill Foley, has bought Bournemouth for somewhere in the region of £150 million. And everybody now knows who he is. There are are articles about him. If I'd done the same in Aberdeen, if I'd done the same at Motherwell, if I'd done the same at at, at Inverness Cali Thistle, I simply wouldn't get that level of attention. So I think it does attract people who who do want attention. And by the way, there's you know, Bill Foley seems like a, a thoroughly decent guy. Um, yeah, we're not. He's certainly not on our wrong ones list, as as some people have uh, have ended up in the last seven days um, for owning other clubs. Um, some of those clubs close to the coast as well. Mm. <laughs> uh, we'll be learning more about Bill Foley, I think, on our next pod, Kieran. Our questions put on Monday because I think. Uh, I've got a slight hangover today, Kieran, after the Palace Player of the Year do, but I'm fairly sure Guy sent the questions through today, and I'm fairly sure there's one about how good Bill Foley will be for Bournemouth. So uh, I look forward to hearing about that. And if it was a hangover-induced uh, fantasy, then I apologise to any Bournemouth fans who are looking forward to it already. Um, talking of clubs on the coast, Kieran, here's a link. The next Price of Football live show will take place at Plymouth Argyle's Home Park Stadium on Tuesday the 6th of June, which is coming up very shortly, isn't it? Tickets are available now from Argyle's website. Um, I know I keep saying this, but it's it's still true. We're, we're we are finding it hard to sell those last stubborn three tickets, Kieran. It's, we're nearly sold out, but there's a couple left. So if you are in the Plymouth area and you want to come and see us live, um, and remember, Kieran will gossip after the show if that swings the deal. Uh, we would love to see you at Plymouth on Tuesday, the 6th of June. Thank you to everyone who's donated to the pod via our Patreon page. If you'd like to join them, that'd be very kind of you. You can do so by making a small monthly p- contribution. You can go to patreon.com slash priceoffootball. And if you have a question you'd like answered on the show, email us at questions at priceoffootball.com. Bye, everyone. Bye. The Price of Football. I'm for the